Alrighty, marital madness, not marital bliss. Ooh, turn me down a little bit because I'm going to be shouting this one. Marital madness, Genesis chapter 29, verse 1. And yes, we're going all the way through 30, verse 24. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. We are over the halfway point now in Genesis. And while you're finding that in your Bibles, let me ask you a couple of questions to see if today will apply to you. It certainly does apply to me. Have you ever been lied to? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever been taken advantage of? Have you ever taken advantage of someone else? Not just ladies, but many times ladies. Have you ever been used as the object of affection? And I want to underline the word object of affection. Outside of marriage? Have you ever been used as, used as an object of affection inside your marriage? Either spouse, have you ever, for those married or used to be married, have you ever felt unloved by your spouse and for so long that you've just given up hope? Anybody ever use their children as a weapon inside of marriage? Ever had children used as a weapon against you in your marriage? Are you unable, perhaps, to have children? And through no fault of your own, because there's a personal health problem in you or in your spouse. Or are you unable to have children because one or both of you abused your body in the past or you made surgical decisions that now you regret? Do you come from or do you currently find yourself in a totally dysfunctional family where nothing ever, ever seems to go right? Well, that's enough depression for one holiday weekend. Thank you. If this describes you, or, and, someone you know, then today's text, a text you would not typically think of, today's text has your name on it. It can be a go-to text for you and for others in the future. This story is quite the story. Um, it has no obvious theological point. It has no commands. There are no visions. There are no oracles. There's nothing that just jumps off the page that says you must do something. But yet it weaves a tale and a tale that can leave us at times scratching our heads. It begins, today's text, begins on an ominous and surprising note. Especially the fact that Jacob, just last chapter, just last week, had this incredible life-changing encounter with God. He received the promise made to Abraham. He became the third patriarch. He's walking now fully aware of God's protection and God's provision. And he's continuing along this journey with the blessing of God and his parents, and the command of his parents to find a wife. And yet, we begin this glorious adventure on an ominous note. Jacob is heading to the people of the east. Hmm. Remember in Genesis, the word east signals things like judgment and vanity and alienation. More obstacles to the fulfillment of God's purposes. As Jacob seems like he's not going to totally escape the various consequences of his most recent sins. And yet, in spite of that, we'll witness God's faithfulness to his promise to Jacob as he quietly, many times secretly at first glance, orders the steps of his elect son, using people's sin and Jacob's sin sinlessly to accomplish his plan. All without interrupting the natural, and I want to highlight the word natural as in carnal, and also just things in the world that we see, 
the natural order of their lives and their cultures. Culture is going to play an important part of today's passage. Within the cultural context, the cultural sins that they don't even see or are aware of, God is going to use cultural sins sinlessly to accomplish His plan in spite of everyone. God is faithful. God is able. Nothing, nothing, no one will stop, can stop His plan. Now, 500 years later, Moses has penned all of this, what we're reading today. And Israel, at this point, Israel, because remember, we keep talking about application for us, but we want us to jump back in. Remember, Israel's reading this as well, and they've been freshly freed from the dominion, the slavery of Pharaoh, and they're about to enter the land. And they're going to discover their origins, the 12 tribes, and the wonderful ways God's gracious work goes forward in spite of their ancestors' human failure. And today, we're going to learn that God's grace takes on any and all sin to include yours and to include sins done to you and cultural sins that you can do nothing about. God's grace takes on all comers, any and all sin. He uses it for His glory and He uses it for our ultimate Good. Here's the big pieces we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the meeting in chapter 29, the marriage, keep going in 29, and then the madness inside the marriage as we jump into chapter 30. The meeting, the marriage, and the madness. And along the way, we're going to continue to discover that God's grace takes on all comers, any and all sin. And He uses any and all sin because of His grace. He can use it for His glory and for our, as He did there, ultimate good. And we've got to substitute the word our there in the story because God is not a respecter of persons. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's for your ultimate good, even if some of that is on the other side of this life. Let's pray. Lord, help us. I mean, those questions all apply to us. We've done all these things. We've had many of these things done to us. So Lord, help us to take courage, help us to take comfort, help us to take hope from your word. Speak to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, bring alive the words of this text through the foolishness of my preaching and burn them into our hearts and our heads to bring us comfort and hope. And Lord, then to take the comfort we've received and the hope we've learned and experienced and give it away to others. Let us be part of this plan of redemption and salvation and its broad work to believers and unbelievers alike. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's jump to the meeting where we're going to learn. Chapter 29, verse 1 through 20, where God guides us, God guides us even when we're unaware of His guidance. God guides us even when we're unaware of His guidance. Let's look at the text together. I'm reading out of the ESV. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered here, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. He said, do you, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? He said, they said, it's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it, it is still high day. It's not the time for livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near 
and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of, you are my bone and flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Wow, sounds like this awesome romantic story, doesn't it? You can hear the violins or the the full orchestra of the, you know, Cecil B. DeMille film and all that kind of stuff. It's going to deteriorate quickly, but um, here we go. Jacob has continued his journey, probably on foot, actually. And it's been three weeks or so now since he had the dream where he's encountered God. So he's, on, he's just approaching a month or more walking. And he comes across what for him is a very familiar sight. Multiple flocks, think many sheep. Multiple flocks of sheep waiting to be watered at a well. But at an unusual time and with an unusual lack of activity on the parts of these lazy shepherds. Remember, while Esau was the wild game hunter and a man of the field, Jacob was a shepherd and probably had primary responsibility managing Isaac's formidable flocks of domesticated animals to include sheep. So this is not new for Jacob. But while it's not new, he's not back home. He's hundreds and hundreds of miles away in a foreign country. Oh, it's one that speaks his language, but it has different way different customs. Jacob is an alien. He is a foreigner. And he's like an ex-manager now faced in another country talking to a group of blue-collar workers. They ain't impressed. And he's alone. And he's in the middle of nowhere. So with a cautious courtesy, he strikes up a conversation and he discovers to his amazement. Remember, he, he, didn't, he wasn't writing this. He was experiencing it. He's just walking. And there's a flock. And he begins to chat with these blue-collar Kirk guys. And he discovers to his utter amazement that God, God, has led him to the exact well at the exact time to meet his uncle's daughter. So he ventures a mild question, challenging their lack of working the flock properly. Maybe because he had concern for the sheep. Perhaps because uh, if he got them working, he'd have a little alone time with Rachel. And he discovers that to water them before Rachel's arrival, the final flock would violate custom and contract. And these concepts are going to play in the remainder of the story. He runs across custom and contract right away. So they're talking back and forth and Rachel approaches and Jacob, he just removes the stone. He breaks all convention. He removes the stone that's covering the well. He waters her flock first. And his long labor, because it's a well, it's a hole in the ground and he's got to pull it out and water all this flock of sheep. His long labor is complete. His emotions now, as he continues to do it, are rising to a fevered pitch. He finally greets the girl with a little smooch on the cheek. Oh, it's an acceptable and customary greeting for a man to a man, different culture than us, and for a man for his daughter or a man for his wife, but it's over the top for a stranger or any man to greet a woman 
in that fashion. But maybe Rachel's going to give the boy some slack, or actually he's over 40, give the man some slack. Remember, he's walking in, and Wells, Wells have played a prominent role in the life of his father and his grandfather. Remember, his mother was discovered at a well the very moment Abraham's servant prayed. And here comes mom! And he's now aware that God who provided provision, promised provision, has provided for me. He is overwhelmed with emotion, joy, amazement, gratitude. In the middle of nowhere, after a month's march, God leads him to the exact spot, to the exact time that his uncles of all people, his uncle's sheep will be watered. And what does he meet? A shepherd? No. A shepherdess? Yes. Any shepherdess? No. The one who's his cousin right away. Potential wife whom mom and dad sent me to find here. Jacob, the word there is the same word that was used for Esau when Esau found out Jacob stole his birthright. Jacob weeps loudly. But for a different reason. The girl runs to get her father with the news. The news that his sister's son has arrived. You've got to remember, we are rolling up on about a hundred... Remember, everybody lived longer. It was about a, almost a hundred years ago that his sister left with a servant to go back to Abraham to marry. And now his sister's son, a hundred years later, just so happened to show up. The younger son meets his youngest daughter. What a coincidence. So Uncle Laban runs back to the well and embraces and kisses Jacob. And then he brings him home where Jacob fills him in on all that's transpired. A hundred years in the family since Laban last saw his sister. Man, he's still a great story. Enter the ominous music. What a contrast to the last time someone from that side of the family came looking for a a wife along our relatives so they could avoid the foreign women and take our women to the foreign land. There's no camels this time. There's no riches this time. It's just this penniless single dude armed with what he says is a promise from God and a commission and a request supposedly from Laban's sister. So when we hear Laban's bone of my bone type of comments, they could be taken as face value that he warmly and fully accepted his nephew into the family or they could be read as a statement more along the lines of, okay, you've convinced me, you you can stay. You're really who you said you are. And stay Jacob does, working for his key. Jacob finds himself at the mercy of his uncle Laban after a month. And perhaps slyly now, Laban introduces. He states that, that you know, he's willing to waive, because he's such a nice guy, he's willing to waive the custom that Jacob, being a relative, must work for free. He's willing to even have Jacob set his own salary, which will, of course put Jacob in the position now of an employee under a boss and will establish Laban instead of Isaac as Jacob's head. But Jacob is uninterested in a wage. He wants a wife. And he found the one he wants, Rebecca. Excuse me, Rebecca, wrong story, Rachel. Man, the whole time, I even typed Rebecca again and again as I was typing And what could be more natural? The younger brother from one family falling in love with the younger sister of another. And by the way, she looks much better than her older sister. And and before you read that and say that, you know, wow, she was a runway model or a lingerie model. No, no. Back then, probably, it was, you know, strong like chicken. She was a little more stocky and she was ready to go. That's, That's what's going on with Rachel. Shepherdess. Pick up sheep. Arm wrestle you for some wine. You know, so um Beauty's in the eye of the cultural beholder. It's true. She looks better than her older sister, even though 
and unfortunately, ESV does, does not do the best translation, which many other translations do a better job right now. She looks better than her older sister, even though eyes were prized in that culture. Even though her sister's eyes were tender and gentle and delicate and young-looking for her age, they were missing some fire and some spark. That's what those words translated means that Rachel had. Leah looks good, but Rachel looks better. There's just one small problem. Jacob comes to the table empty-handed. He needs cash for the culture's mandated marriage contract. He has no bride price, no dowry to offer dad. And dowry, by the way, was, was something that would serve as a family trust fund in case the guy divorced his wife. She's got some money that the family held in trust, the bride price, the dowry. Or if he died, the widow could get the bride price. Well, no problem. He'll serve in lieu of a salary. And for the equivalent of nearly twice the expected cultural amount. Laban agrees. Duh. And the text fast forwards seven years later, noting that that seven years of fast forward was just like a few days due to his intense love for her. God quietly but clearly has guided Jacob to the right spot at the right time. And we can learn that God's going to guide us too. He's no respecter of persons. He'll guide us too, even when we're unaware of his guidance. But we can also be sure that sometimes, along with this guidance where he will guide us, his God will even use the sin of others to affect his will as part of his guidance in our lives. Let's check out the marriage when the music now goes away. The marriage, 29. Let's look at verse 21 together. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Jacob Jacob demands, demands that he get his wife. Now for us, wife, wife, they're not married. Uh, Yeah, it looks like they're betrothal was very similar to what you're going to be starting to read now in Luke as you're getting your family and yourself ready for Christmas. Their betrothal looked much like Mary and Joseph. They were legally husband and wife. It would even take a formal divorce to separate them at that point. But the marriage had not been consummated yet. She's still chaste and living in her father's home. It looks like Laban is dragging his feet again, just like he did with Abraham's servant. He's dragging his feet again like he did with his sister before, and he's looking to squeeze just a little more labor out of Jacob, although the agreed-upon time was complete. And, and it nearly twice the customary dowry. So what's a dad to do? What's Laban to do? Answer directly and hand her over? No. What does he do? He ignores the question and holds the customary cultural nuptial feast. Let the party begin! I'm not answering. Let's move forward. So this formal procession is made from the tent of the groom to the tent of the bride's father. And then, the word translated there is better translated. It is, remember, these weren't Christians or Jews yet. It's a full-tilt drinking banquet. And it involves the entire community. The marriage contract is read. Some kind of a ritual occurs and a procession is made back to the tent of the groom with a heavily veiled bride led into a very dark tent so that the marriage 
could be consummated. Normally, there would be six more days of feasting that will follow, and the bride and the bride will then return to her father's home with conjugal visits still allowed until the first child is conceived. It's a different culture than ours. Aren't you glad? Okay. Um, the signal, conception, the signal that a new household has begun, and now the bride gets to live with her husband, perhaps in her father's, the husband's father's home, or at least on the husband's father's land. But all of that doesn't count because, as uh, Gomer Powell would say, surprise, surprise, surprise. As Jacob awakes to daylight, a fresh day, and he's married to Leah. The deceiver has been deceived. Jacob, remember? at the instigation of his mom and with the help of his mother, pretends to be his older brother. Now Leah, at the instigation of her father and with the help of her father, Jacob's uncle, pretends to be her younger sister. Jacob confronts his uncle and his employer who has the audacity you can just hear. He's using the same word that was used when he was deceiving his dad. Now he's talking to her dad with the audacity that he's been deceived. And he is informed and he is rebuked with the fact that, pal, in this country, the younger never usurps the right, and he doesn't use the word older. He uses the word firstborn. Ouch. So Laban, of course, would never marry off Rachel ahead of Leah. Duh. And Jacob is confronted. And Jacob has met his match. But nobody's a match for God. And anyway, since Laban doesn't have a problem around there with culture, they don't have any problem with sister wives. This is like the ultimate weird TV show. <laughs> Reality TV has nothing on this. Since the whole culture doesn't have a problem around here with sister wives, why don't you, tell you what, why don't you just work another seven years? That was the agreed-upon price, wasn't it? And, and complete Leah's week, by the way, because we don't want to embarrass her or defraud her, do we? That wouldn't be right, so complete your week. And then, by the way, you need to commit contractually to serve seven more years, and we'll give you your wife in just a few days. The deceiver's met his match. What a mess. When it's all said and done, there's going to be four full dowries, 14 years of indentured servitude, two sister wives, by the way, with two servants who will soon become slave wives, for a grand total of four competing mothers, all to a man who's aware that multiple marriages are not God's norm, and all to a man who's aware that his family history, multiple marriages, has caused misery to all of his relatives. What's up with Jacob? What's up with me and you? Is we're that stupid too. Looks like Jacob's still under the discipline of God. And yet, remember from last week, he's still within the blessing of God. And God, amazingly, will still continue to protect and provide for him even while he's under discipline. God will be faithful to his word. And he and we will discover that God's grace will take on any and all sin to include my own, using it for His glory and my and your ultimate good. Let's move forward to the madness. We're going to discover that God's work continues. <laughs> oh, do you see the theme? In spite of constant and consistent human failure, it just gets worse. Let's check out the text. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name is called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. He said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife. And Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived. And bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again. What's up with Jacob? And bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, the Empire Strikes Back, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest... Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may, it'll make sense as we examine it, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me. For I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And, and God listened to Leah. I hope you hear that as an amazing statement in light of what we just read. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Oh my goodness. I mean, can you see God works? His work continues. The 12 tribes of Israel, 11 of them are now born. Continues in spite of, can you see the constant and consistent human failure and sin? Now before we navigate and mind the text, let's in the minutes we have left, check out the structure. We're going to use it as a guide to help us navigate this maze of information. So check this out. We're going to have hate and rebuke and superstition. And here's three sets of four as they're born. Let's start with hate. Jacob didn't hate Leah like we normally use the word. Again, other translations do a better job of translating the Hebrew. better way to say it is, he loved Rachel more than Leah, or she was unloved. It's like a polar opposite. Like when Jesus said, hate your parents, it's in comparison to me. But although Jacob didn't love her, he didn't hate her, but he didn't love her. But although Jacob didn't love her, God did. And while Jacob spends the next four years working off his debt, remember we're back to marriage? 
and Rachel spends those same four years unable to bear a child, God gives Leah one son a year. And she names them like all the other kids in this story are named. All, can you imagine if you were named? Your name. Oh, what are we going to name our baby? Let's do something about we're blessed. Or no, no. What, <laughs> what if what you just decided to name your kids were just reminders of strife in your marriage and in your extended family? And that's what the 12 tribes of Israel were named after. Strife. Failure. The fall. Sadness. Some of them are named after. Some of them are named after gloating. Reuben's meaning reflects the sound of his name. It's both a lament and a wish. Affliction and a, and a hope from a forlorn, forlorn mother bride that her husband maybe will love me because I've borne him a son. Swing and a miss. Simeon. God, she names him. God hears the cry of his people in need. She needed love and God heard her cry and she hopes Jacob will hear it too. But he doesn't. Here comes Levi. Levi's named by this time a more sober Leah. She's lonely, and her hope for her husband's love for her is fading. So she asks for less this time in the name, just some attachment. She hopes that Jacob will be just just drawn to her. Year four, Judah's name, this time with resignation, but resolve. She's given up hope for her husband's love, but she continues to respond in faith to God's love. Evidenced by God's provision. Judah prays. She will praise God. And she ceases having children for now. <laughs> Next we move to rebuke. Watching Leah have sons year after year wears on Rachel. She has looks and she has love. But it don't matter. She wants children and she wants God to remove the cultural stigma of barrenness because the stigma of barrenness then had this implication that there was hidden sin. And she must have been having some kind of hidden sin because the gods or God is punishing her by making her barren. Back then, barrenness was not pitied. It was despised. Rachel's sadness moves to self-pity and then it morphs to anger and then it goes on the attack to her husband. She cries out in anguish and she truly believes she'll die if she doesn't have any children. Now the sad irony is in chapter 35, on her second child, she does die. Not because she doesn't have. She dies while giving birth to Benjamin. What a sad irony. Jacob responds like any loving, wonderful husband, true to form of character. An angry rebuke. <laughs> That's what your wife wants to hear when she's depressed. He speaks the truth. He does. But not in love. And she responds to him in kind, taking the matter into her own hands, as a good wife of Jacob would do. She's going to help God out and make sure she has some children. Jacob's obviously not the problem. So in spite of knowing full well the misery of her family history, she's going to give her servant to her husband as a slave wife. And, and she, still a slave wife, she will require her slave. Require her slave. What a mess. Require her slave to be a surrogate mother and force her slave to give up her son to her. And she's going to adopt him as her own. Oh, both of them. Dan, Naptali. Rachel, in the midst of all that, Rachel acknowledges God's providence and declares herself heard by God and vindicated from any hidden sin. Welcome to Dan's name. And rewarded for her tenacity in the struggle. Welcome to the next name. She's won. She's gloating. She's won a victory over Leah. So she's going to name her son in honor of that. What a mess. And Leah strikes back with her servant, does the same thing. What's up with these women? What's up with Jacob? 
Gad. That means not Egad, but Gad, like lucky. It means prosperity and fortunes come away from the hand of God. And Leah's right. Even in spite of another surrogate forced adoption of a slave wife. Asher. She says she's a happy mom and all women will deem her fortunate because of her happy, wonderful lot in life. And just when you think the madness couldn't get any worse, oh no, enter superstition from the culture. Yep, it's harvest time in the land and wheat and mandrakes are both in season. Mandrakes were used by that culture in fertility rites. It was thought to be an aphrodisiac. And to our story, was a cure for barrenness. So let's bag God and go for superstition. Rachel spots the mandrakes. She's barren. And she asks for them. Leah finally has the upper hand. And she takes full advantage of it. She calls Rachel out. And she forces a deal. Because Rachel had control over the other three ladies' conjugal rights probably. So she calls her hand. Crazy. The mandrakes, of course, don't work for Rachel as she experiences three more years of no kids. While Leah has three more children. How did you like to name your children these names? Issachar, which sounds like the Hebrew word for hired him or my wage. Celebrating this nonsense. But it serves to denigrate Rachel. You, <laughs> I'm naming my kid after what just happened. <laughs> Zebulun's name suggests, suggests Leah's endowment. Finally, she's got a great dowry, a valuable gift. And she still hopes, after all these years, that her husband at least will honor her. I mean, it is the sixth son she's born. And then Dinah. Although her name means vindication, just like Reuben's. The text does not mention it. She's not a tribal head, and she's going to round out the, the number to seven, the number of completion for them. But really, her name, like many other times we find in Genesis, it's a hint, it's a foreshadowing that she's about to play a prominent place in the next story or two. So what about Rachel? Well, seven years later, Rachel is no longer the proud and impatient woman she once was. She's been brought low. And it appears she's been praying. She seems to have finally given up on her schemes, her superstitions, her surrogates, her anger, and her envy. She's at the bottom, and she has no word but to look up. And guess what? God who loves the lowly, God who gives grace to the humble, God who exalts the weak. He removes her reproach. And she has the hero at the end of Genesis. The one who saved all 12 tribes from extinction. Joseph. Whose name represents this time a hopeful prayer that God may add another child to me. Ever been lied to or told a lie or been taken advantage of? Ever been used as an object of affection? Ever been a user? Ever felt unloved by your spouse? So long you've given up hope? Ever used your children or had your children used as a weapon? You unable to have children? Do you find yourself or come from a totally dysfunctional family where nothing has ever, 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 ever gone right? Well, i got good news for you. God takes on all comers. And God is not a respecter of persons. I mean, Jacob was a liar and had been lied to. And he remains in Scripture the third patriarch of the faith. As a matter of fact, God forever changed his name when he added Jacob. God, again and again, throughout Scripture, is known as the God of Abraham, self-designation, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob. 
And they were all bums. And God is so faithful. It doesn't speak to their wonderfulness, but to His. It doesn't speak to their faith, but to His faithfulness. It doesn't speak to their ability, but the fact that God keeps His promises. It doesn't speak to their love, but to God's. Yes, he was taken advantage of. He had 20 years. He had four wives. And he was an idiot all along the way. The God of Jacob, who suffered discipline inside the promises of Abraham. And God did take him back home to the promised land. And he never did leave him, and he never did forsake him, and he always did protect him, and he always provided everything he promised. Leah was blessed and misused it. But the Israelites learned that God loves the lowly, and God reaches out to those in need, even when in their need they're sinning, he still reaches out to them even though they're spiteful and vengeful and they gloat and they're ticked off, he still reaches out to them. He is not like me. And he humbles Rachel. She's got it all. Looks and love. But she takes her looks and her love and she uses it selfishly. And she goes for superstition. And she tries to make things happen her own way because she's craving for something that only God can give. And about the time she finally goes, I'm going to die. It gets worse before it gets better. And God preserves her. And she doesn't die. And she makes it through her depression. And she comes to an end of herself. After going the route of superstition and stupidity, God still doesn't give up on her. And when she gives up on her, God's there. (laughs) Never leaving. Never forsaking. This time the prodigal girl came home. And there he was. It's funny. The names of the heads of the twelve tribes, they reflect tension. <laughs> and yet, Joseph is the savior of all twelve. And, and you who come from a dysfunctional family, or are in the middle of one, um, you realize that two of these names are responsible for your savior? Do, do you realize that out of an unwanted marriage, polygamy, that was forced deceptively? Do you realize from someone he didn't even love and care for and just serviced the unit and was bought by her? Someone who is, is having faith and being disregarded even while she's having faith towards God? She's not getting what she keeps crying out for even in her children's name? Some token of affection from her husband? But God is still loving her? And you know what? We have no idea how she went to her grave. But you know what? When you meet her in heaven, she's the mother of Levi. You know, Aaron and Moses. The Levites. The priesthood. And she's the mother of Judah. The one she resigns herself. I'll never get love from my husband, so I'll praise the Lord and call him. Oh, that's where King David and Jesus came from. Her life stunk. I bet she's okay in heaven. You know, Scripture doesn't minimize. Scripture shows it for all the junk that it is. And then, and then when you think it can't get worse, the people make it worse. They sin and they're sinned against. And you and I would just say, I'm done. 
but God in his infinite patience and his great grace to bring him in his name glory. And because he has compassion on his people who are hurting. It's not just about his glory. Part of his glory, he has compassion on the people hurting. And he knows what they need, even if they don't feel that he's giving the right prescription now. He knows. Because he knows all of eternity. They're just focused on now. And he doesn't... They get disciplined, but they don't ever get what they deserve. They get mercy. Because they're in the covenant. And he loves them. And he's going to provide. And he's going to protect. And he's going to show his love. And one day, they're all going to be dead. And none of this is going to matter. Because that protection and provision, remember First Peter? There's an inheritance being preserved for you, kept. Oh, God's your keeper, by the way. There's an inheritance being kept for you. God's grace takes on all comers. Sins against you, sins you do. We took communion today. We celebrated the reason we're sitting here. Sins have been washed away. And by the way, you've been reconciled. You're in the fam. He's going to provide and protect in the middle of a fallen world, much of which we create for ourselves. He's greater than whatever you do. Let's pray.